Boy, it's good to see the DeGarmos got their heart right now that Justin's back. What a blessing. You're taking a chance on the front row. That's the baptismal row. And uh, amen. Take your Bibles, please. Let's go to John chapter 13. If you can believe it, we're starting a new chapter today. John chapter 13. It only took 110 messages to get here. So what we're going to do this morning is we'll start here in John chapter 13. We'll begin by reading verses 1 through 17. The Bible says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done unto you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither uh, he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. And so the DeGarmos have volunteered to sit up front. I'm going to show you what a foot washing looks like. People are wondering, am I joking or not? I'm joking. Um, <laughs> Boy, it got tense there for like three seconds. Everybody thought we was going to have an old-fashioned foot washing up in here. And uh, it might do us some good, amen. Carter, you keep those things on now. Um, I don't want to know what's happening inside of that shoe. Um, so here we are. And, and, you know, before we get to the main emphasis of the message I feel the Lord has for me to give to you, I, I just want to do a short Bible study here to discuss the context in which we find this chapter because there's a lot of debate as to where it fits into the other three gospel accounts. And what I've discovered is there's some things that I study which really intrigue me and probably 95% of you could care less. And that's going to be the case here for the next 10, 15 minutes. Amen. And so dare I say the one percenters are going to be the only ones that will, will appreciate any of this. Um, when you study the four Gospels, it's important to understand that much of John's account is giving us things that the other Gospel writers didn't give. In fact, the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the Synoptic Gospels, 
which simply means when you read them side by side, there's a general flow and agreement between those three. And then John has all this extra stuff, if you will. Um, They're all unique in some respects, but um, just because John here adds details that the others do not include, it doesn't mean that what we're reading is necessarily a different account from what some of the other writers have mentioned. For example, if this context here is the Last Supper, which I personally believe it is, then John is the only one to record this feet washing event. None of the others record that. Um, If this isn't the Last Supper, then nowhere in John is the Last Supper recorded, which wouldn't really be unusual in the book of John for that to happen. But um, I'm just saying there's a lot of things in this chapter I'm going to point out here in just a minute that are identical to events that happened at the Last Supper. But the reason for the debate, why even get into any of this, is um, some people uh, have confusion when they get to verse 2. And it says there, and supper being ended. And then we read that the devil had put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to portray Christ. Um, Some have suggested that verse 2 is not referring to the last supper, but that it's referencing a different supper. Some say that it's referencing the supper in which Mary anointed Jesus, which we saw back at the beginning of chapter 12. And, and what we've seen is John will several times insert statements that are kind of helping the reader to understand something. And at times it can be difficult to know whether or not that it's actually part of the historical account or if John's just drawing attention to something. And so if we take the approach that verse 2 is different, it would have to be parenthetical looking backwards at what has already taken place at a previous supper. I'm confusing myself. Is everybody okay? Because it's going to get worse, amen. Just hang in there. I'll wake you back up when time's right, and we'll get to the actual message. So if verse 2 is referring back to the supper in chapter 12, where Jesus was anointed, that is pretty interesting. Because it was during that supper that uh, Judas looks at uh, Jesus. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Now, the reason that's compelling is because after Judas Iscariot says that, Jesus rebukes him. And and Jesus says um, to him, let her alone. And so uh, after that, Judas, I don't know if he was just, I mean, obviously it was already working in his heart and his mind. And I don't know if that just triggered something, but it was after that supper that Judas then goes to the chief priest and he conspires with them on how he can betray Christ into their hands. And he says, what will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Now that sounds reminiscent of verse 2 of our text. So there's an, there's an option there. But I don't think that's the case here textually. Um, I, I personally believe that when we read verse 2, Judas has already made that deal with the chief priest. He's already ready to betray Christ, and he is now actively seeking an opportunity to go and betray him, which we are going to see unfold as this chapter progresses. But if this chapter is all the same supper, then why in verse 2 do we read that the supper is ended? 
Because as we read the rest of this chapter, it's clear that the supper is not ended. The supper continues. In verse 4, Jesus rises from supper and he washes the disciples' feet. Now, that's an event that would normally take place at the beginning of a meal. The beginning of actually even when you enter in. Um, And so it's a little bit late even in that regard. But that's something that would normally happen early. And then in verse 12, after the feet washing, Jesus sits down again. And before the chapter is over, they're eating supper, which I didn't take time to read all that. So what gives? Why does this verse say, and supper being ended and not supper beginning, which really kind of seems to be the case contextually? Well, some of you are going to hate this, but that's okay. You'll get over it. The, the Greek word used for supper being ended is used well over 600 times in the New Testament. And it's translated over 40 different ways throughout that time, over those 600 times. Um, it's got a lot of different definitions. Um, it's not the same Greek word that we think of ending as in finishing something. It's, it's a whole different word. Um, this, this particular Greek word here, it can mean everything from supper being prepared to supper beginning to supper continuing to supper ending. It can mean a lot of different things. This is my personal opinion. You can take it what, for what it's worth. Um, I won't be mad. and You can tell me where I'm wrong. I won't be offended. But I personally believe what verse 2 is saying when it says in supper being ended is that the preparations for supper have now ended. That's just my opinion. And that now they are about to partake in this supper. And so supper being ended, they're going to wash feet, they're going to sit back down, and then they're going to have this supper. Amen. I don't know why I spent four, 40 hours trying to figure that out uh, yesterday alone, figure that one out, amen. And, uh, but, but anyway, uh, that just really had my head warped. And anybody that knows better, come and tell me. I'm not educated, amen. I'm just, I'm just doing what God called me to do, Jed. Uh, Boy, we're sure going to miss you guys, and I mean that. All right, now, everybody who fell asleep, wake up. Let's get to the message. Because none of that really matters in the grand scheme of things. Now, back to the question of whether or not this chapter is the Last Supper. It it does seem pretty clear to me that this chapter is, in fact, the account of the Last Supper as found in the other three gospel accounts. I, I, I don't see any breaks in this chapter to suggest that a night passes or two nights pass, or another supper begins. And there's some definite things that are said in this chapter that mirror uh, those in the other accounts of the Last Supper. For example, in verse 21, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Now that is also said in Matthew 26, 21, Mark 14, 18, and Luke 22, 21. And John 13, 26 is also found in all, uh, all accounts in the same context. But the clincher for me is the last two verses of the chapter, verses 37 and 38, which are contained in the Synoptic Gospels. But the reason why that's so convincing to me is because in verse 38, Jesus says to Peter that he was going to deny him three times before the cock crows. Now, when you compare that to the other Last Supper accounts, in Matthew it says, This night before the cock crows, thou shalt deny me thrice. In Mark it says, This day, even this night. And then in Luke it says, This day. So I personally believe, 
Jesus did not say that twice to Peter, as some people suggest. But that at the end of this chapter, it is simply saying what was going to happen that night. So I believe we are in the context of the Last Supper. Jesus is going to be crucified the next day. Is everybody with me? That's the context of where we're at here. Now, if you accidentally tune me out, tune me in. It's going to be a slightly different approach today. We've been going verse by verse but as I was preparing for this, you notice I read like 17 verses. <laughs> that never happens, and we're not even really going to get to verse 1. So um, let's just see how this goes here. But verse 1 again says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he would depart, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And I want you to catch as we start chapter 13 that there is a shift in attention that we've seen in the previous 12 chapters. For the first 12 chapters, we've had Jesus primarily on record in the crowds uh, in John here. He, he's shown healing people publicly. It, the, the book starts out, uh, Jesus shows up on the scene and he's baptized publicly in the Jordan River. Uh, he's preaching publicly. He's performing miracles in the open. And he's doing nothing in secret for the first 12 chapters here. And, and we conclude at chapter 12 where Jesus was street preaching in Jerusalem by crying out the message of their need to believe in him in order to have life everlasting or else they would stand in judgment in the last day. And I'm just simply highlighting that much of what we've covered so far in this book has been Christ's uh, open and public ministry. For the last three and a half years, Jesus' disciples, they've been with Christ. They're walking with Him. They're learning of Him. And, and they're observing Jesus. And, and they're considering all of His teachings. They're listening to the parables. And they're growing in the knowledge uh, of their Lord and Savior. And out of ministry necessity, they had to share Christ with the multitudes. Everybody understand what I mean there? That's not to say there weren't private times of discourse between Jesus and the twelve, because there certainly was. We learned that from the other Gospels. But here's what I want you to get. From chapters 13 through chapter 17, it's just Jesus and his disciples. Five chapters are devoted to this private discourse between Jesus and his disciples. And we see in verse 1 that something major is on the horizon. His hour was come. Jesus knows what is about to befall him. He knows the time of his suffering is at hand. He knows the time of his departure is drawing near. And he knows that he will ascend back to the Father after his resurrection. We are at the time of the end when Jesus will offer his life a ransom for many. What's great about the flow of these next five chapters is before Christ... Now listen, I want you to start getting this. Before Christ is betrayed, put on trial, and crucified, he takes the time to teach, prepare, and encourage his disciples... For the very difficult night ahead and the very difficult days ahead as followers of Christ. 
they are going to be ashamed of Christ. They are going to desert Him. They are going to be discouraged. They are going to be confused. They might even wonder if the last three and a half years of following Christ was even worth it all. Because remember, they gave up everything. And it's not going to be very long from here that their Messiah is going to be in the grave. Jesus is essentially here. He's gathering his disciples around him to let them know what is about to befall them. And we see similar things today. If you've ever had the death of a loved one or maybe you've been in the room as someone is passing out of this world and, and, and they gather family around them and they began to just kind of uh, encourage the family or maybe set their house in order because they're about to pass. It's not uncommon to see that. In the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob gathers together his 12 children and he tells them what's going to befall them in the last days. And then when Moses, before he passes off the scene, he addresses the 12 tribes. And here Jesus, before he passes, he gathers his 12 disciples and he begins to prepare them for the day for adversity that they are about to face. We might say that Jesus is getting his house in order by trying to help his disciples. He knows the difficulties they're going to face. He understands that when they look at the cross and they see their Messiah, their deliverer nailed to the cross, it's going to be uh, troubling. It's going to be confusing to them. And so over these next five chapters, Jesus and his disciples will spend quality time together. Is everybody with me? And what I want to tell you today is that for all who will attempt to walk with God and serve Christ, there must be these private, intimate, personal times with the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, let me go ahead and chase this down really quick. If, if you want your efforts to touch another heart, it's going to have to touch you first. Come on now. Uh, help me out here because singers, when you get up to sing, if that song hasn't reached your heart, it's not going to reach another heart. I don't care how talented it sounds. I don't care how good it sounds to our human ears. If it hasn't reached your heart, then it won't have the touch of God on it and it's not going to make an impact. You've got to have private time with the Lord. And I'll tell you, every Sunday school teacher, you can throw together your lesson on Saturday night if you want, or you can spend time in prayer throughout the week looking at the faces of those you're going to minister to in your mind's eye and asking God to reach their heart. But that lesson is only going to be as effective as you're prepared. Amen. And I don't care how good of a preacher somebody is, until that message has reached their heart, it's not going to reach the heart of the listener. Because we've got to have this private time with God. God has to do a work in our heart in secret before we can effectively minister outwardly. Our public ministry must be precipitated by private times with the Lord. These provisions 
are wrought during private times. We must learn to sup with Christ when our situation is conducive to do so. Because you are going to enter difficult days of testing in your life. Every one of you in here. Difficult days are coming. Ask some of our senior saints. Difficult days are coming. And there's coming a day when there'll be, there'll, there'll be no table to gather around. Because it'll be that difficult. And you're not going to be kicked back as, as John the Beloved is leaning on Christ's breast and, and as he, he hears the heartbeat of God and, and, and they have this time of just sweet fellowship. I want to tell you that after this supper, when Jesus is betrayed, all of a sudden they don't have that anymore. Isn't that right? They all, the Bible said, forsook him and fled. I just want to tell you, there's going to be days of confusion. There's going to be days when you wonder, did I miss something in the will of God for my life? Did I miss something God was trying to tell me? And what's going to get you through those deep valleys in your life is the time that you've spent with the Lord on the mountaintop. I'm talking about times when it's just you and the Lord. No outside influences, amen? No smartphones. No computers. No radio. No internet. I'm I'm talking about not even having notes. Getting alone with God. Being alone with God with no distraction. Why is that so important? Because the Lord wants to prepare your heart for the day of adversity that you will face. And the only thing that's going to help is quality time with Him. Now, why does Jesus take the time to do all of this? Well, if you'll notice at the end of verse 1, it says, having loved His own, which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. Why does Jesus want to do this? Because He loves us. He loves us. He wants to spend quality time with you so that he might prepare you for the days of testing that every child of God will go through to some degree or another. Jesus told Peter that Satan has desired to have you to sift you as wheat. But Jesus said, I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Why was Jesus praying for him? Because he loved him. Proverbs 24.10 says, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Are you taking advantage of spending quiet time with the Lord before the days of adversity? Because when the difficult days come, you're not going to automatically turn into this great Christian. You see, we, we lay out a church and we lay out a church until things get bad enough, then we show up. And we expect that all of a sudden our life is going to be the shining example of Christianity. Like all of a sudden we can just flip a switch and become devoted to Christ 
and we'll just walk with God like we've never walked before. Young people stay out of church and, uh, until babies arriving. And then I need God. And then they disappear until baby hits two. Now I need God again. And then they disappear until child hits 13. And then I need God again. Somebody say amen and help me. <laughs> we just bounce in and out, in and out, in and out. And we think at some point we're just going to be this great Christian that's got it all figured out. So we can just wait till difficult days arrive. But I'm telling you that when you're in the valley and you're doing that, you will look for God. But if you didn't learn to walk with God while the walking was good, you're going to fail on the day of adversity. I mean to tell you, it's hard enough for somebody who's trying to do right. Don't believe me? Ask Peter. He did deny him three times before the night was out. What does your day look like now? Are you spending time with the Lord? Are you spending quality, quiet time with the Lord in prayer? Are you fellowshipping with Him? Are you hearing what He is trying to tell you? Because He doesn't want you to fail in the day of adversity. The children of Judah were taken captivity by Babylon. Difficult days would lie ahead. And the king of Babylon wanted certain of the children of Israel who were skillful in wisdom, cunning in knowledge, and understanding science. And there was four that were specifically mentioned in the book of Daniel. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And all four of them were given Chaldean names. Daniel was named Belteshazzar. And the other three were called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these young men obviously had already learned to walk with God before the days of adversity. Because they purposed in their hearts that they would not defile themselves with the king's meat or his wine. And God blessed all four of them. And it was these four men who stood strong during the captivity. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who, after Nebuchadnezzar had it, uh, made the idol for all to bow down, and they said, we will not bow down. And, and the king said, okay, fine, we'll just cast you in the fire. And, and so they heat the thing up seven times hotter than it had been eaten. And, and uh, anyway, they, they cast them in there. The day of adversity. But they had already made up their minds way back there in Judea they were going to walk with God. And don't you know who showed up with them in the fire? The Lord showed up with them, amen? He was walking with them because they decided to walk with Him back here. And then we get over there to um, chapter 6, I think it is, and, and uh, Darius is now in charge, and, and his advisors get him to issue some sort of decree that nobody can pray to their God for 30 days. But you know what Daniel already purposed in his heart way back here? Is that evening, morning, and at noon will I cry unto God. And so even after that decree was issued, Daniel, uh, man, he's got the windows open, amen? He doesn't care who sees him. He's praying towards Jerusalem, towards the temple. And of course they catch him because that was the whole intent of what they were trying to do. Daniel was highly respected by Darius and he didn't want to throw him in the lion's den, but he had to. 
So he cast them in the lion's den, and that night God sent a mighty angel to stop the, the mouths of the lions. And Daniel lived. Amen. You see, these four men were strong in the day of adversity because they had learned to have private times with the Lord. I can tell you what would have happened had they not had private times with the Lord. Those three Hebrew children would have been burned up just like the guards when they opened up the furnace. And Daniel would have been consumed having not learned to walk with God. Somebody say amen and help me here because the Satan is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I'm telling you, unless you learn to walk with God in the day of adversity, you're going to fail. That's what's going to help us through difficult times. Not only is it a walk with God, but it's the assurance of the knowledge of the love of Christ for us. And those four men knew no matter what happened, God loved them. Hey, God's able to deliver us, and if He doesn't, so what? You know what they were essentially saying? I know in whom I believed. And I'm persuaded that He's able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. When we have these two things figured out, we can be more than conquerors with Christ. When we know that we have been with the Lord in secret and that we've heard from the Lord, and when we also know that the Lord loves us, then we can go through adversity with the Lord by our side. Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39 say, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it was the love of Christ that constrained Paul. And what's going to keep us going is the private time spent with God and knowing that God loves us. But so many people today I talk to, they don't even know that God loves them. And I'm talking about people I, I talk to in church. And they struggle with this idea, does God really love me? I don't know how much clearer he could be. So I want to get back to what I asked you earlier. How does your day look now? Did you spend time with the Lord this morning? Well, I'll let the preacher do that for me. Did you spend quality time with the Lord? Did you spend time in prayer and in fellowship with God? Did you spend time in His Word? I'm afraid most people, the most they get from the Word is when the preacher reads the text. Intimate times with the Lord. With no distractions. Church attendance alone will not be enough to get you through your day of adversity. And some cheesy little devotional where somebody else tells you what they got isn't going to be enough to get you through. Well, I've got 365 days with the Lord written by so-and-so. So what? That's what God gave so-and-so. What did God give you? Somebody help me. Man, we get so caught up in these other devotionals what does God want to say to you? Not what did God say to me and I put it in some little fancy pocket booklet that you can take out and read in 30 seconds and go, well, I got my daily bread. I don't know if I just hit a nerve or what, but something's up. I mean, I mean we got to get real about this thing. We've got this Americanized view that everything's going to be okay. 
God wants to talk to you personally. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. Here's what God had to teach me when we went to North Dakota. (laughs) Nobody go to North Dakota, amen. Les, I'm sorry, brother. Um, Now, he's on the southern part of North Dakota. He might be okay. But nobody go up there around why not, my not, freezing's the reason. Don't go, don't even go there. Um, And so I'm up there and God began to teach me a lesson and I won't speak for my wife, but I'm sure it was uh, similar. You know what God showed me is this. You better learn to gather in during the years of plenty if you want to get through the years of lean. Egypt was going to have seven years of plenty, seven years of lean. And the only thing that got them through the famine was what they gathered during the seven good years. And I want to tell you that if, if you don't learn to walk with God during the fruited plains, boy, you're going to starve when you hit the wilderness. Ecclesiastes 12.1 says, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not. Young people, you better start learning to walk with God now. Don't you live off of mom and daddy. Because the day's coming here very soon. Some of you are going to step out of the house and reality is going to hit you fast. And whatever you gathered while you had those 18 miserable years at home. That's what's going to sustain you as you get out on your own. I often tell as many that will listen. The habits that you start in your 20s is who you're going to be in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s. I'm so glad to see all these young people here from the base. Amen. God bless you. Our college students, thank you for being here. What you start now is who you're going to be later. We need to learn to walk with God while we can. And the reason why I'm so saddened and and so burdened about this particular thought today, even though we're not necessarily breaking this verse down, is how many that are failing in the day of their testing. And I'm not talking about, you know, sometimes we think, oh, you just mean that, that liberal church. I'm talking about independent Baptist from Liberty Baptist Tabernacle. If you could just see the faces in my mind now who are on our rolls and are no longer here. They failed in the day of testing. And what's really sad is when the adversity hits them, instead of drawing closer to God, they begin to withdraw even further and things just continue to get worse. And so I try to tell as many as I can, you just stay faithful. Just stay faithful. Walk with God. Get in the Word. Get in the prayer closet. You get quiet time alone with God. But so many are backsliding in the day of adversity. And what's really troubling is how many don't recover. They go on to live defeated lives as a result, never experiencing victory. And I want to tell you it's because they didn't have chapters 13 through 17. They didn't have quiet time with God. They didn't have personal time with God. They didn't have personal instruction from the Lord that was designed specifically for them from God. And that's what we need. God wants to give you these moments like we're going to see in these next five chapters. 
but you need to be in your place. Judas made his decision. He got up and left. He had opportunity to be in the same place to hear the same words. And he left. You have to be in your place. This isn't some magical thing. You must believe that God is. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. What, I actually got to put some work to this? Yeah. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for your word and thank you for this thought. Lord, help us this morning to walk closer to you. Help those that need to draw nearer. May we do business with you like we mean it. Lord, so many of us are, are not gathering in new manna every day. We're not getting fresh oil. We're just living off the stores of yesteryear. That's going to fail. Help us, Lord, to go out every day and gather in what we need for that day. That we would trim our, our wicks, that we would clean our globes, that we would have fresh oil, and that our light would so shine. We need you to get through the days of adversity. May we walk closer with you than ever before. I ask for Christ's sake. Amen.